The next chapter with Prim Saripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week, I sit down with someone who is a trailblazer within the field of psychology and also athlete mental health and wellness, and that is Dr. William Parham. Dr. Parham is a licensed psychologist, an author, a professor in the counseling program at the Loyola Marymount University School of Education in California. And after three decades of working with some of the best athletes in the world, as of 2018, he was named the inaugural director of the National Basketball Player Association's new mental health and wellness program. It is believed to be one of, if not the first program of its kind within the professional sports landscape. Now, we recorded this interview a few years ago on the campus of LMU, which is obviously where he is stationed. And after listening back to our entire discussion, I decided to post the majority of it. And while it is quite lengthy, I know you're going to walk away with so much information. And I'm also a much better understanding of many things, including the history of psychology and why we only think of mental health as illness and dysfunction, and also the differences between counseling, clinical, and sports psychology, and what parents, coaches, and teams, and all of you at home listening need to know about where these different clinicians can and cannot help you and your athlete. And also why the transition from sport requires a level of adjustment on so many different levels. If you're someone who's really interested in these topics, you might want to pull out your notepad because there's going to be just a lot of good information coming your way. So without further ado, here's Dr. William Parham, someone who has been a tremendous mentor to me over the last several years. happens to be in the area of sports psychology, and now specifically more deliberately intent on the wellness of athletes across levels and across sports. This is something that I've learned, uh, and I've learned a lot about the field just having to apply because there's mm-hmm. just... There's the difference between counseling psychology versus clinical psychology and the difference between sports psychology. And so just to kind of break it down in layman's terms for people so they understand, but you you also have a foundation in counseling Correct. psychology as well. Exactly. So does that that enables you to deal with not only sports performance issues, but matters off the court and field too? Oh, without question. Absolutely. I'm actually trained as a psychologist. I'm licensed as a psychologist. I'm board certified as a psychologist. So even if I wasn't doing the sport aspect of it, I can have a clinical practice as I have had in the past. I can teach. I can do things as a psychologist, independent of sport. It just so happens I've had the opportunity and I'm privileged to apply my craft, my trade, things that I'm passionate about in the domain, in the arena of athletics. Mm. Um, and that's where the two have been put together. 
But a, a sports psychologist, a licensed sports psychologist, they do, and this is something that I've learned, a, a sports psychologist, they do have a doctorate level degree, but they don't necessarily have the capabilities to cross over into counseling psychology. Am I correct? Or is that the line of They can be, uh, let me answer it delicately. <laughs> oh, a psychologist is a person labeled with a PhD, has gone through four years of graduate education, has done uh, an accredited internship, a field placement, has served uh, in a clinical position uh, under supervision of a licensed psychologist for 3,000 hours after one's degree, and then has submitted to an examination. Uh, in the old days, it was both oral and written. Today, it's written. Hmm. Um, but once you've passed all of that, then you can be a licensed psychologist. Uh, there's no such thing as a licensed clinical psychologist or a licensed counseling psychologist or a licensed sports psychologist. It is a licensed psychologist. Got it. The clinical counseling really have to do with historical roots. Okay. Uh, sport is an area of focus. Um. And that area of focus has raised a couple of questions. So an ongoing question in the field of sports psychology is who is the real sports psychologist? There are those who are traditionally trained in psychology who may not have had a lot of experience with athletics, but who apply their psychological training in the field of athletics so they're called sports psychologists. Hmm. There's another group who aren't psychologists at all, who come from other disciplines, including disciplines such as kinesiology, uh, dance, uh, coaching, who have worked for years with athletes in performance in all sorts of ways. Uh, they mix and match their turn. Hmm. And people and the consuming public believes them to be sports psychology. There's a sort of a, a third group, which is a combination. Those who may be traditionally trained with traditional academic credentials and who have had experiences uh, for years working with professional athletes, elite uh, entertainers. So the combination is sort of the compromise for both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is important when you're talking about the sports psychologist that's working with A, B, and C. What does their title that they are claiming to be really consistent? Mm -hmm. I think that's an important question to ask. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been working with athletes for a really long time. 30, 30 years, 30 you years. said? So both collegiate, Olympic, professional, correct? For and I happened to stumble upon one of your former pupils, oh, Charles yeah. Arbuckle. Yeah. I found that out in, uh, in the middle of our interview, and we're going to do a nice little surprise call with him later. Okay. But he was like, he was just going, kind of rambling through his story. He said, you know what? I was, I was, it all began with um, 
a psychologist I started working with when I was at the Colts. And, you know, he, uh, he had me do this, this exercise. I think you had him print out a picture of himself or a picture of somebody else, uh, uh, another tight end. I can't remember, but we'll, we'll find out a little bit more. But he's like, Dr. Parham. I was like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. wait. Yeah. <laughs> the William Dr. Parham. <laughs> But, well, yeah, and I've had a lot of fond memories of my time at UCLA. I was there for 26 years and had a great relationship with the athletic department. Still do actually consult with the uh, national champion softball teams and the uh, national champion uh, gymnastics teams, women's gymnastics. Their gymnastics program is amazing. It's it's tremendous. It's yeah. the best ever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did you get into the field of sports? Have you always been a sports? Well, I've always, yeah, I've, I've never played professional sports myself or collegiate, but I've always been doing sport at some level, probably since I can remember. Um, even now, uh, I play basketball once or twice a week. Do you? Yeah, and uh, Tai Chi, practice martial arts. Oh. Um, so I, I've been active in sport forever. Um but also when I went to UCLA, um, and at the time I was working in psych services there, I was the only African American on campus delivering clinical services. Wow. Which, when I look back, it's just sort of odd to think about it in that way, but it was just a fact. And I began receiving um, a number of referrals from the athletic department for players who were struggling. And it just so happened to be many African American players. Mm. Uh, I think it was in 1983-84, I'm not remembering exactly when, but the NCAA initiated drug testing officially as a practice. And it was at that uh, introduction um, requirement that I and a colleague put together the first alcohol and education substance use education program for the athletic department at UCLA. Wow. So we began doing it with all the teams. Um, so building relationships with all of the coaches, the players, that led to developing a peer group that led to, essentially by the time I left, we had seven programs addressing athlete wellness. Um, many of those programs are still existing today. Mm. So I was always enamored with helping athletes really discover who they are. My mantra has always been, it's important to understand the person before the performer. The performance is just what they do, it's not who they are. So as it turned out, uh, at the time UCLA was the uh, one of the leading uh, universities for um, advancing their athletes to the professional ranks. So I got a call from somebody who was a former athlete, uh, why don't you come do a program in the NFL? So that's how I started there mm. and was working at some point with their rookie transition program and putting out presentations. Somehow the word got out in the NBA and I was invited to do a couple of presentations there. Somebody in the audience there was working with the Lakers. They said, well, if you're doing that, why don't you come work with us? So I was working with the LA Lakers for 10 years. And when was what period was that? When was that? Uh, right on the tail end of uh, Rudy Tomjanovich through uh, all the coaches ever since and up to just before Luke. Mm. So it's Phil Jackson, Mike Brown, Mike D'Antoni, 
Gotcha. Um, Byron Scott. Um, so I was doing that for a while. Um, but prior to that, I was also uh, a psychologist for the U.S. Olympic women's volleyball team in 1996, 1986, 96 in Atlanta. Uh, but also had a short stint consulting with the USA um, tennis, soccer, um, but also the collegiate sports all at UCLA and a couple mm-hmm. of years here. So I've been doing the combination of sport and psychology for at least 30 years at various levels. I could have used some of your help, although we had a really good sports psychologist at, at Duke University, yeah. but I almost went to UCLA. Huh? So had I gone to UCLA, we might have crossed paths right. 20 that's years true. ago. That's right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, let's, I want to delve into the MBPA, but let's just talk about, I want to talk about the the space of mental health as we see it today in society mm-hmm. and it's it's a dynamic that's changing and mm-hmm, progressing mm-hmm. i feel like we've taken a lot of a lot of strides um but from a macro perspective i've done a number of interviews so far and in in the stories that i've read that we've all read about you know demar DeRozan and and his dealings with depression and kevin love and the panic panic attack in the postseason royce white the stories are out there and, and also my personal accounts with t- athletes and talking with them, at least this is from my perspective, it seems as though the NBA space is progressive in taking strides compared to other sports. Um, would you say that? Yes, I would. I think the, the NBA was the first to really sort of hit the ground running with a comprehensive program. Uh, the MBPA, as you know, is the union. It's run by players. It's for players. And when players began to speak out, the Players Association heard that and says, we have to do something about it. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, Kelly Oubre, a couple of coaches, they all came within a relatively short period of time. So it was no way to ignore uh, what they were saying and they actually showed a lot of courage, a lot of vulnerability. Um, and it was as a result of the accumulation of not only them, but Royce White and others before him, uh, dating back decades. Um, the PA finally said, well, we have to do something about it. These are human beings we're talking about, not just players. Mm-hmm. And so that launched that uh, the MBA now has a uh, mandate that each team has to have somebody on the retainer, if not part of their system, a mental health service provider, a psychologist or psychiatry. Um, so I think it, it is advancing. My guess is that other teams, uh, both domestic and global, are going to add their voice to the conversation about the importance of mental health and wellness. Uh, so, but I think that the domino has fallen, the lead domino, and I'd like to think that it will continue to fall and really resurrect a conversation that's been laying dormant for quite some time. In fact, there's been an active yeah. force and series of forces to not really address it meaningfully. I think the, con- the time has come and opportunities have presented themselves in abundance she really began thinking about it differently, looking at it differently, 
communicating about it differently and doing something quite differently mm. in terms of helping people to understand it, uh, to heal from any wounds that they may have, but also to engage in protective strategies to maintain the health and wellness that they have. It's not about just obtaining this. How do I maintain a life of balance, mm -hmm. resilience, managing the predicted ups and downs? Mm -hmm. But all that comes from an internal drive, uh, feeling confident, ready to go, a sense of agency about oneself that I can take care of myself and control the spaces that I can. All of that is important. And so I, I'm encouraged that I think that conversation both domestically and globally will continue. Yeah. It is interesting to think about all the 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 determining factors that are changing the landscape. I think it's um you know social media is a huge sure, part of absolutely. it. So it allows athletes to kind of be that they can tell their own account. They take out the middle middleman really in, in and yeah. media they can tell their own story. Um so it's given people the power to speak out. But then there's also Correct. like the commercialization aspect mm -hmm. of it where yoga's coming you know, it's trendy um, being out here in California. Everyone's got a sure. green juice and going uh -huh. to yoga and and all that and you know all those different things. But um, but there still remains a stigma mm -hmm. around mental health. And I think the one thing that I've learned, or at least I tried to communicate to people, and I know you do as well, is that mental health. I think it becomes confused with just mental illness and disorders. Um, but it has to, it, it has, to, people have to understand mental health that is on a spectrum. Correct. Right. It is on a spectrum. And in order to really understand it, you have to understand several points. One of which is historical. To really understand what the current language comes, current beliefs, you really have to look back decades ago. Uh, and let's even evoke the insane asylum is what they used to be called. When you really look at the history of the insane asylum, you'll notice two things. One, they were huge uh, systems and organizations and complexes where somebody who was quote-unquote crazy, uh, who was really deviating from family social norms in pretty dramatic ways, was put somewhere in an asylum. In other words, separated from the crowd. Um, and then once they were in there, when you look at the history of the treatment, when you look at it now as barbaric, um, it was not very pleasant. Mm -hmm. um, but it fueled the language of this mm -hmm. ostracized, let's keep them out. Let's get rid of them. And there are all sorts of interventions that were used. Bloodletting, so you can bleed out the disease. That means all sorts of things oh that you get into. But study the history of the asylum, and that gives you sort of a historical root and context for the current language that is used now. Uh, when you look at the history of pharmaceutical companies, in 1954, with the advent of psychiatric medication, I believe Thorazine was the first that was marketed as a chemical lobotomy. Now, if you understand what a lobotomy is and what was going on in these asylums, 
And then you look at chemical lobotomy, which had the same effect. That was revolutionary. Hmm. Because you can create the same effect with a pill that you didn't have to do in barbaric ways. Wow. Revolutionary. Needless to say, the pharmaceutical industry took off. Hmm. Um, When you add the study of psychiatry all within practice of medicine, all of which rooted in a model of pathology and see the study of pathology as a study of disease. So everything had a disease focus of what's wrong with you focus, a pathology focus. All of that early rooting contributed to the current language now. Mm. So that's part of the stigma. Stigma, if you really look back in American literature, Hester Prine in The Scarlet Letter, she committed a social offense. She got caught, busted, if you will. Um, She was deemed by an authority to have done wrong. She was given a letter to wear over her uh, jacket, publicly outing her as having deviated from a social norm, Mm -hmm. having everybody in the community treat her accordingly. And she began to obviously have a reaction to how she was now being treated. That sort of stigmatization. I want you to hear from that, that there's somebody in authority saying that you deviated. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in authority pinning a badge of dishonor onto you and forcing you to engage still in a normal life. Well, if you understand the psychology of all of that, people are quite naturally not going to talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. People are want to keep what's really going on with them private because of the public shame, uh, humiliation associated with it. Now, when you add the context of gender, men are not given the same permission in society to emote as women are, for example. Yep. Um, they just aren't. And practices... My practices in the past, if I've seen a a woman who's traditionally depressed by all traditional markers, she admits it, her social network supports it, the diagnostic indicators that we use to assess it all confirm that there is depression. It got to a point where I then would say, okay, now that there's some evidence that this is your lived experience, I need to ask you some additional questions. And I would ask some additional questions focusing on rage and anger. Mm -hmm. Likewise, where I have to get a man, big, strong, 6'4", 220-pound man who was anger, even court referred for anger management. I would assess completely for anger management, uh, including impulse control, history of violence, all of that. But then once I would say, okay, now that I have that profile, I would go back to some questions about sadness and depression. I found out in my experience when I put the lens of gender 
mm-hmm. on the expression of one's mental distress. For a woman to be legitimately angry for whatever constellation of reasons, and going around calling you all sorts of MFs, putting her fists through walls, the first thing out of everybody's mouth, including women, is that bee's crazy. Hmm. Totally discounting what she really legitimately, authentically might be experiencing. And so knowing that she behaves in ways that are socially acceptable. Hmm. And I'm not saying that they're being dishonest and feeling depressed and down and sometimes hopeless and helpless. I think that's part of the experience. I'm convinced it's not the entire part of it. Mm-hmm. Like with, with a guy who's ragefully angry and history of violence, maybe even a criminal record. Um, that's not the whole story. There's some other sadness and grief, loss, perhaps even trauma, that he has not been given permission to express in legitimate ways. So we all carry around, and there's a lot of data support that a lot of people carry around what I've termed invisible tattoos, mm-hmm. markers of their life in ways that are not so pleasant, but are incentivized to sort of keep it wrapped up. And so again, when you add gender, now when you add celebrity as another context, mm-hmm. well, elite athletes, entertainers are not wanting to disappoint their fans are not wanting to publicly put themselves out in a vulnerable place. So they're also incentivized to sort of keep things tight, play the game, put on the image. Um, I can go on and on with layers, but when you add the contextual layers to understanding, having a mental health struggle and expressing it can be totally two different things. Hmm. And and so it's important to really get a sense of who the whole person is asking him or her what forces in your life have contributed, have influenced the person that you are today, the person in terms of how you think, how you feel, how you behave, the decisions you make, the way you self-protect and go through your life, Mm -hmm. Uh, navigating careers, uh, family, other relationships that you have, all of that is important. Yeah, I think that's... You know, I mean, that's why I created this show, because I think it's really important to through my own experience, I realized that my performance and my role, my identity as an athlete was very much intertwined with who I was, Absolutely. you know, and I think um, it's important to have these conversations and educate people really about it, because I think there's just this objectification of the athlete and we see them <coughs> as we put them on a pedestal, we see them going out there strong, dominant, performing, and we forget that they are people too. But then I think with their line of work, people just assume it's like, well, it's sports, it's fun, it's games, you know, but there's a seriousness behind it today, especially, you know, with the money, the business behind everything. Um, But I wanted to talk to you about the, you mentioned the gender differences. Yes. And I've noticed that, especially with a lot of the conversations I've had, it has to do with athletes identifying with what they do and and a lot of them struggling when sports no no longer are part of their life. Do you notice that male athletes would have a a bigger issue once sport is no longer a part of their life? 
I would say yes, although I don't know that there's any real hard objective data to support that. There's plenty of data to suggest that when the fans stopped cheering and you were no longer in the limelight of sports and fans and all of the activities that are associated with that, that there is, in fact, a loss, a verifiable, demonstrable loss uh, of identity. Uh, and depending on how long you were in the game, uh, how well you performed, the kind of adulation that you received, uh, the amount of support, validation, all of that gets factored into the equation of now that you no longer have those sources of emotional nourishment uh, or nourishment in all sorts of ways, including financial. That's a lot to get used to uh, because you work hard to get your time in the pros, for example. You're very committed. You're dedicated. You actually love and have a passion for what you're doing, which makes the grit and the grind bearable. You set these North Star goals. You want to really make it and not only make it, but contribute. Mm -hmm. And the person who wins all games is Father Time. <laughs> you will never win against Father Time. Yep. So at some point, that's an open portal to a transition. And the key to that is, do I know that up front, what can I do to prepare for it? And even if you say, ah, oh, it'll happen, I'll do it when I get there. You can navigate post-career life and do so quite well, but there's no way to not have an adjustment in doing so. Mm -hmm. you, you can't escape it because it's part of who you are and having to redefine yourself as a professional, as a person, as a breadwinner in case of a man or a woman, it's just multifaceted confusion. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on knowing what we're doing. We're grounded in uh, regularity, uh, things that are familiar, things that are routine. And when all of a sudden, all of that is disrupted, that eruption of that with not a clear date of being resettled creates a lot of ongoing angst. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true for men, women. It's true for transitions from high school to college, from college to the pros, from pros to life after. Mm -hmm. um, you can't get out of the psychology of transition. But again, most of that is rooted in the concept of identity. Mm -hmm. We tend to take on that which we do as a mainstay of our life. Uh, I'm curious if you think there's a, a weight or a heaviness that comes with retiring from sport and, and how that's different from other retirements. So I, I was doing kind of a, and this is just on a superficial level, I don't have nearly the depth of knowledge that you do behind this, but some of the things that I learned and I was looking at some of the research on this uh, about career transitioning um, among athletes. And so they start pulling different theoretical models and they start comparing it to other occupational retirements and everything. But it is true that, you know, with athletes, when they retire, they're not 65 years old, like most people are. Correct. They're 22, 25, Correct. 30 something years old. And also Correct. their career started at seven years old, Correct. as opposed to when most people are doing it, they decide what they're going to do at 22 years old when they're leaving college. <clears throat> but because right. of that dynamic, especially their identification happens at such a young age, does that, does that create a recipe for 
that it makes it just that much tougher to leave? Absolutely, because the younger you are, when you start forming this identity, it sticks. You don't have the cognitive sophistication or emotional intelligence emotional intelligence to really sort of understand what's really going on. You're just into the flow of the adulation, the success, the navigating the ups and downs, of the support from family, friends, the media, your coaching staff. It's just everything is good. And so you really bring in all of that in. You're honoring the contract by doing your part to prepare, go through the grind, and then perform. All of that is part of the identity that you grow into, uh, are surrounded by. It really is, in many respects, the oxygen of life for many athletes. Depending on one's involvement, depending on the amount of adulation and uh, awareness of this particular person, uh, depending on their success, uh, that fundamentally shifts when the very next part of their life after transition, they haven't planned for it. And so all of a sudden it's quite different, like night and day. Mm-hmm. That, those are the aspects of the biggest adjustments. When they after, haven't planned for it. When they haven't planned for mm-hmm. it. But that includes those who haven't planned but have been healthy, but also those who have to exit sport prematurely due to injury that they have to get out and sort of forced out. Uh, They didn't plan. They still can lead a successful life after that, but it takes a little bit more time. Uh, There are those athletes who, in fact, do plan meticulously, financially, in terms of their family, in terms of what are they going to do with their own health, with their own uh, fitness regimen. Even the best prepared for a transition. Mm. There's still going to be an element of, now that it's here, this is real different. One of the things I often hear with athletes is that uh, they're willing to put up with the grit and the grind and the travel and the circadian clock disruptions and all that comes with it. But the camaraderie of the brotherhood or the sisterhood, going to battle with these guys, uh, that's priceless. That's something you can't capture all the time. That's not something the average person working in any job or career has with their fellow uh, peers. That's a huge part of the loss. And so that has to be recaptured somehow. They has to be reconciled in some way. And absent a team of supports around you to help you negotiate that post-career transition, it can be difficult. Now, in fairness... There's a, a, another group of athletes for whom the transition is quite a relief. Yeah, There's that's a smaller percentage of athletes who are in athletes who have done well in athletics who never really wanted to be there. Hmm. They were performing for <laughs> parents or because generationally that's what our family does. But they feel that when it's over, it's relief. That's a good point. I've seen athletes who... When you add injury to that to that group of folk, um, I used to see this quite frequently years ago in my practice. Athletes who were injured really honored their regimen of rehab, but they started missing appointments, showing up late to rehab appointments, right when they're about ready or scheduled to sort of get released to go back into play. 
And that was always sort of curious to me as to why now are you uh-huh. now all of yeah. a sudden not complying with the regimen? Yeah. Well, that was the smoke detector. That, yikes, this wasn't feeling so bad. You couldn't grind a rehab and going to get your joints twisted and pushed and pulled and massaged. That was ugh. And I didn't have to put up with all this other. Even though I was doing well, but I, it wasn't nourishing me emotionally as I thought it would. And now that I'm getting better as a result of successful rehab and compliance, I got to go back into that stuff. That it's stressful I wasn't being, being nourished. an athlete. Yeah. It is. It's hugely stressful. It's so stressful. And a lot of the consuming public assembly doesn't have a clue about all of that. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they are medicated to not look at it. It's entertaining. There's thrill, the agony of defeat, the thrill of victory. All of that is marketed. It's engaging. And fans love that. But even if you understand the history of cinema, which I'm sure you do, people like the personal side of the fan. They're interested in their stats and how they look on the court or on the field. They really gravitate to listening to the human story. Of the athlete. Of the athlete. Yes, definitely. Uh, Folks in your business, both visual media and print media, a lot of stories are coming out about the human part of the athlete. Why do you think that is? Well, because it taps into the human part of the fan, their vulnerability. But why wasn't it there before? Like, what's changed? It's difficult to talk about one's personal stuff. It's also easy to be a voyeur into somebody else's life. This is not appropriate, maybe, in this context of this interview, but when you look at the emergence and a tremendous success of uh, on-air television, of, of radio television, of uh, the housewives and the, the court shows and the, the talk shows, mm-hmm. where they are really divulging personal stories, very private stories. But the consuming public is just, it feeds their voyeurism and say, look at this, look at this, it's entertaining. Um, it's like caters to the reality TV, the gossip. Well, and that's, the- that's what I'm talking about. Uh, okay. Reality <laughs> TV has succeeded largely on the voyeur principle. The more gory, exciting, jaw-dropping, it just pulls into people. But that's also part of what other fans are struggling with, in my opinion. I think that's, then when you add the dimension of social media, yeah. Where sometimes people say anything about anybody at any time in any way, despite the safeguards out there, people are real vulnerable to that. Yeah. And so when you really look at the sort of psychology of belonging, I want to affiliate with an organization with something, all of that comes out in the context of sports, and mm-hmm. all of that makes can make for a difficult transition if you're not ready for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. You know, you you talked about social media and fans. Uh, Social media has given fans and players like a direct connection between the two parties. And the fans, you know, you you talked about them really seeking the humanistic side of, of athletes. But then there's also the play of sports media 
and I'm a part of that, but also fans objectifying players Absolutely. and saying, and people, you know, like I, I talked to a lot of my uh, NFL colleagues and friends and the, the amount of hate tweets and mail that they get from fantasy uh, players, it's like unbelievable. So in your experience in working with athletes, what are some, you don't have to share any personal accounts, obviously that's, that's private information, but what, what kinds of things could you share to all the, to everyone that's listening out there to peel back the layer on why it's important to understand the human behind the role of the athlete, the person inside of that? Well, first and foremost, before an athlete became an athlete or an actor, an actor, or a journalist, a journalist, they were always a person developing, shaped by parental forces, school forces, larger social forces, really striving to ask the question, who am I and what is my purpose? Um, that sort of self-examination the ability to reflect, the uh, drive to want to be visible, to be very intentional with one's work and, and one's purpose in life, that's a universal human experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it just so happens that we fall into areas such as athletics where we say, maybe this is what I can do. And I commit to it, I give into the grind, I appreciate the, the hidden uh, challenges therein. I embrace the challenges that I know are going to exist because at the end of all of this, I know where I want to go. I have a North Star vision, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but again, even after you finish with that, you're still that human side. You, you cannot divorce yourself from being human. You can attempt to, you can drug out, you can do all sorts of things to try to not deal with it. But you can't divorce yourself, really, from being human. You cannot want to address your issues. You cannot want to think about taking responsibility for moving in direction A or direction B. It never removes you from being human. Uh, the real trick is how do I be human and express my humanness in my career? How can I be human and express my humanness in my relationships with spouses or kids? How can I be human and express myself in terms of my spiritual centeredness or direction, mm -hmm. my spiritual path? How can I be human and express myself in my leisure pursuits? So the human equation is always there. It's not always talked about. Yeah. What's focused on is the athlete or the journalist or the this or the that. Right. That makes sense at some level. But my guess is that a seasoned baller as who he or she is comes out in what they do. Seasoned journalists, a seasoned anybody. So the human part is just a fundamental core of who we are. We were made humans. We were not made robots. Mm -hmm. And we have a special talent at hum as humans that we each are called to discover. And how you go about discovering the talents and genius that you innately have, the people you surround yourself with, the environment you put yourself in, the opportunities that you succumb to, uh, the way you, in fact, negotiate challenges that are most of which are off the radar. All of those are collectively opportunities to discover 
who you really are, what is your real purpose and intent. And, and so, getting back to your question, being human is just who we all are. Being a journalist or a baller is just what we do. It is not who we are. Right. You are never not who you are. You can behave differently, but who you are is always going to be who you are. There's some athletes that I that I speak to, and also just just non athletes in general. And and I feel like the next generation, uh, they're understanding the concept of the things that are in my life. They are just what I do. They're not who I am. And I didn't understand. No one ever said that to me until I started to, I realized I needed help and I started to get therapy myself. Um, and that's when the conversation started. My therapist was like, that's not, but that's not who Prim is. That's what you do. And who is Prim beyond the accomplishments and everything else. And I was like, I never had that conversation before. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And also growing up in an Asian household where there's high expectations and, and identity is often tied to sure. your accomplishments. I was Absolutely. like, I, I don't understand this conversation, you know? Right. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting how it's all very intertwined. It's all intertwined in, in part of what you're sharing. And I appreciate your disclosures. We want to feel a part of something. Yeah. We want to feel connected. We don't like feeling separated, disengaged. Um, and we are willing to do all that we can and must, sometimes some things we don't want to do, to hold on to that connection, that sense of uh, emotional and actual intimacy, uh, the sense of people valuing who you are, the feeling that you have that you are helping others negotiate their space. All of that is life energy. And we're willing to address our affiliative needs in all sorts of ways, some of which aren't always healthy. But nonetheless, it's there. So you, you can't separate out, I can't separate out, who you are as a person, as a human, um, from anything you do. You, it's integrated. Right. You, you just are. You're yeah. sort of stuck with being wonderful. And if you be a journalist or a parent or a spouse or whatever else you do, you're always going to be prim. Mm -hmm. And whatever you are here to do in your life's purpose, you may or may not know that yet. But all along that journey, you are still prim, whether you discover it or not. Good news is my life purpose is doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Well, you're doing a good job, and that's cool. Uh, thanks. Well, it's taken me several years to, to kind of figure it out. I, I One NF, former NFL player that I spoke to, Walter Powell Jr., he recently retired. Well, really, a, a, about a year ago, two, a couple of years ago. And he, he wrote an article on the Players' Tribune, and he said it so intelligently. Did you read it? Do you know? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was really good. But yeah. he, he said... Football was my passion, but it was not my life purpose. Right. And when he said that, that resonated with me. I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. I can understand that where tennis was never my life purpose. It was something that I love. It was my first love, right. um, but it wasn't my life purpose. Um, and I'd be interested to see you 10 years from now to see if this is still <laughs> your life purpose. That's true. Uh, because I 
would be interested to see if it is. Yeah. yeah. Because things are always evolving, right? Always yeah. evolving. Yeah. And you have new clues as to, hmm, yeah. what else can I do? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's, just be open to that yeah. journey. Oh, I'm definitely open to yeah. it. Um, yeah. I've learned firsthand that you can, uh, you got to be willing to go with the flow a little bit because you just don't know what's going to pop up. Yeah, um, exactly. So you, you've dealt with a number of athletes from so many different backgrounds and in different sports. I'm, I've got multiple questions. I'm not going to hit you with too many of them, but I, I'm curious, or maybe I will, but I'm curious about what are some of the common themes or common issues that you see across the board that all athletes deal with? And also, is there anything that's popping up with the current field of athletes that you're noticing is different from past generations? Wow, that's a multi-pronged question there. Um, I know, I throw a lot at you. I think if I had to come up with sort of a broad brush stroke similarities across the athletes, I, I think finding a way to be passionate, commitment, dedicated to uh, embrace with everything that is the sport that you are pursuing but how to maintain a balance with all your off-the-court activity. Mm -hmm. I think that that's true of all athletes, irrespective of sport, gender, and developmental age. So for youth sports, the same balance is necessary, although parents are ostensibly adding the balance offside. But even as you get to the pro uh, level, maintaining balance is important. Putting up with the, uh, as I call it, the grit, the grind of both domains. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an increase in the responsibility of how do I do this? Um, and how do I do it well? And as you get older, if you are married, have children, that's a whole different set of responsibilities. And so how to commit to several areas of one's life See, that's and put it all, but how to balance it. And that's the common issue that, that you see a lot of. Those are some common issues and uh -huh. how to sustain that over time. Mm -hmm. How to be in it but not have it define me. That's a real struggle. Um, but ultimately, what am I really here to do, I think, is a common theme that plays itself out. But I think there are different forces that take athletes in different directions. Athletes, for example, growing up in poverty, that's a whole different journey than somebody, than an athlete growing up with affluence. Mm -hmm. Completely different struggle. Uh, athletes who are quite gifted, uh, exceptional, Olympic caliber even, but who go into coaching and other related systems where they are targets of abuse. That's a whole different journey than athletes who aren't in those systems mm. and aren't survivors of abuse. Mm. Uh, race, social class, uh, one's sexual identity, one's disability challenge. There are a number of athletes who are quite gifted who are uh, physically challenged in all sorts of ways. Uh, there's the Special Olympics, for example. There are 
But those those are different dynamics, and, and each one of those contextual lenses adds a different psychology, if you will, to their journey of how do they commit, how do they balance getting giving to the sport and being nourished by it, yet having another life that may have some dimensions to it that some of my other counterparts do not. Women. Um, they quite frankly and honestly and factually don't have the same sport opportunities that men do. Mm. They don't have the same levels of endorsement during sport, after sport. There's just a whole different journey when you put the gender lens on. Yeah. So while there's some commonalities based on the contextual lens that one uses, you get a whole different color to the picture yeah. that develops. So really no no common theme with the exception of trying to maintain the balance between the athletic obligations with other aspects of their life. Well, balance, fighting for who one really is and what mm-hmm. one's true purpose is mm-hmm. during but also beyond sport, mm-hmm. I think is also a common denominator. You know, eh, combining some of the stories that players have shared within the mental health space and then the interviews that I've, that I've conducted, but also just through relationships with uh, a number of athletes. I've noticed more issues of anxiety and anxiety attacks within the NBA space. And that's not to imply that it's not happening elsewhere as or it's not happening in an NFL space, but maybe that has to do with, the NFL space, you know, there's there's less room for it. There's um, we're still dealing with a different climate, a different culture, um, very masculine culture. But do you notice? Are there differences between between the various sports in terms of the issues that might pop up? In, in short, no. Hmm. The way that they are expressed, maybe. But anxiety and depression are universal experiences, irrespective of sport or gender or occupation. But the way it is expressed is very, very different. And the sport may have a way that it comes out or doesn't come out. Mm. Men, uh, for all sorts of reasons, have to contain themselves. So they can't be as vulnerable with what they're anxious about or what they're nervous about or what they're afraid of. So they sort of keep it in, talk to their tight circle of uh, uh, partners, friends, confidants. But for the most part, they keep it wrapped up tight and keep pushing forward and drudging through it. Um, So I I think that it's no different in terms of having anxiety. How it is expressed Mm -hmm. can be very, very Mm. Uh, an NBA player recently shared with me, and he, he hadn't shared with uh, that, with anybody publicly, that he had experienced an anxiety attack while he was playing. And uh, I have had my fair share of experiences with a lot of things, but I haven't had an anxiety attack. But can you explain a little bit what, what happens uh, with the dynamics of that to kind of get to that point where the attack finally comes to the surface? Well, what it feels like experientially is... A huge, like a tsunami wave of panic, of dread, of feeling pushed into a corner, of having no room, no no way out. And it seemingly comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. 
and you have no idea when it's going to cease. And once it does, uh, you begin getting anxious knowing that it may come back. It likely will, but you have not a clue as to what's going to trigger it. So there's a vulnerability of not knowing. Yet when it does, it literally is like a tsunami wave of emotion that hits. Uh, it feels overwhelming. It feels like, I don't know what the heck is going on. It feels scary. Um, you begin to be more cautious in how you leave your home and how you conduct business and mm. how you exert yourself. Always on guard and feeling the need to protect and guard against yet another one coming. Uh, panic attacks, though, are something that can be managed. Uh, panic attacks feel bad. They feel awful, scary. You feel out of control. Mm. But panic attacks don't just pop up just out of nowhere. It feels like that. Right. But it's been. But there's always a trigger. Not only is there always a trigger, but I like to see any express, outwardly expression of distress. In this case, we're talking about chronic anxiety. But it could be post-traumatic stress. It could be depression. It could be anger. However, their internal distress manifests itself. The notion I use is that of a smoke detector. If you were to go home prim, busy day, getting ready to chill, put your key in your front door and open your house and your smoke detector is going off. I doubt that you would go step on a step stool, take it down and go get it fixed. <laughs> right. See, the fact that it went off suggests that it's working. Right. It is calling you to come pay attention. And you may discover, well, it's no big deal. On the flip side, it's a big deal and you have to do something more aggressive. Well, the outward expression of panic, of depression, of anger, of something, some behavior that deviates from the norm, those are athlete smoke detectors, indicating that they got triggered, indicating that something else is going on that has nothing to do with the sport. Mm -hmm. It's played out in the context of sport, mm. but it has nothing to do with the sport. I've seen many athletes over the years who've had what we now know as the slump. Yeah. All of a sudden you're doing well, and all of a sudden you get into this lull where you just don't seem to be producing as you expect yourself and everybody else expects yourself. Well, the intervention there isn't to teach you now how to swing a tennis racket or teach somebody how to relax and shoot a free throw. You don't forget how to execute your sport. It's a smoke detector, though, that something else is happening. And your body's maybe signaling, maybe I'm ready to think about this, talk about it. So let me identify some off-the-court resource, a professional therapist, my minister, my whomever, whoever your support is, mm -hmm. who's not always going to tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> and let me make sure I get that address and then get back to committing myself to the sport. So there are really opportunities if you're really listening, that there's something else that's a part of you that's asking to be released and to at least be addressed and talked about. The yeah. stuff that we carry around, these invisible tattoos, they don't like being ignored. 
<laughs> or they'll go around for quite a while. Say, okay, we just, like to ignore just, them. Exactly. <laughs> and we do things in terms of work, relationships, making money, buying homes, buying cars, doing what we think is okay. Hmm. Really burying, or so you think, all that stuff that's in the back. And that stuff in the back is real patient. <laughs> but some trigger will come and psh, launch it into a things start having panic attacks or post-traumatic stress. And, and then you say, well, where the heck did this come from? Well, it came from here because it, it's always been there. But you just weren't paying, not you, but that person was in not general, paying they weren't paying to attention it, to Or them. were paying attention to it and actively keeping it down. So is that is that the <coughs> next step? within the mental health space space is educating people on not only what the smoke detector is, but like, but identifying it, knowing where it is and also how to figure out the signals. Are there, are, is that some of, in a nutshell, that's exactly yeah. what an ideal goal would be. Is and is you, that some of the, some of the things that you're doing with the, the new program with the that's what we wanted to, Yeah. We, we do have several parts of it. We do have the first part of the program as you may or may not have learned. We, in every city where there's an MBA team, we have a a list of resources, licensed mental health professionals. If a player calls and says, I want to talk to somebody, we can hook them up with somebody in that city. The second thing is we've developed a player access only website. A key theme of that is mental health literacy. So they can go onto one of the pages that's called mental health literacy. And we must have at this point I don't know, 80 or 90 links to mental health and wellness information. Okay. So whether it's about anxiety, depression, gambling, sexual compulsivity, relationships, wide range of topics, both domestic but also international. You know, the, uh, the NBA now has a fair number of uh, almost a quarter of their players are international players hmm. uh, in excess of 100, I believe. So there's some attention to that. So mental health literacy, which is an attempt to educate players, position information in front of them so that they begin to say, hmm, well, this is why I do this, or this is why so-and-so is doing what they're doing. To really at least tweak the curiosity of, hmm, there is a language mm -hmm. that I can now use mm -hmm. to understand my journey. And there are people uh, that I can surround myself with who really can help me navigate sometimes these troubled seas that I'm on right now. Mm -hmm. um, really getting players to participate more in their not only healing from whatever past stuff they're carrying, but there's a fair amount of athletes across sports who are actually doing quite well. Right. Who are actually quite balanced, whose mental health is, is quite healthy mm -hmm. and balanced. But even that group, which is a large group, they can't predict tragedy. They can't predict injury. They can't predict a lot of things that happen to them. Right. Now, they may have internal and external resources to better manage it, but they're always going to be challenged. So, again, it's not about how do I obtain mm -hmm. mental health and wellness. It's how do I maintain it. Mm -hmm. It has to be a lifestyle approach. It cannot be uh, uh, 
seeking a technique or a pill to keep me going. Uh, if you start thinking about a lifestyle tech, what can I do every day to really keep myself in check, in sync, in alignment with the goals, short and longer term, that I want to achieve, which are all consistent with the purpose that I think I'm here for? Right. That's work. I mean, it's no different than trying to maintain a healthy diet. You know, some people try to do the, the fad diets that last for 30 days, 60 days, whatever. Right. But it's people have to understand that it's a, an everyday effort. It's a lifestyle. you got to figure out what works for you. It's um, maintaining is so important. So many of us are uh, reared to believe that obtaining is the big thing. Hmm. How do I obtain getting into school? Well, you have to get in school, but you got to maintain it. <laughs> yeah. How do I get the relationship with this person? Well, once you do, you got to maintain it. How do I get this car that I've been dreaming about? Well, but you got to maintain the upkeep. <laughs> right. How do I get this home that I want to live in? Well, but how do you pay the mortgage? I mean, everything is maintaining. Yeah. And that takes ongoing awareness, uh, parsing out very intentionally and deliberately time to address the pieces that are necessary to maintain and all that takes commitment mm-hmm. long term to stay on course. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Lord knows there are sufficient life distractions that sort of oh, yeah. bite us outside of the course that we're on. Mm-hmm. And getting help for maintaining it is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aspiring psychologist uh, is interested in how you were able to construct this program because I've had a number of conversations with various people in the mental health space and also not just people at the, you know, people involved in professional sports in the various leagues, but also at the D1 university level. And we're seeing across the country at division one university, especially at the power five conferences that they, there's a lot of student wellness and mental health departments that are being built you know, where there's a sports psychologist and a nutritionist. But in speaking with one of the, you know, somebody who, who was, who's at a very big institution, they said, you know what, Prim, we're, we're learning as we go. We're just kind of paying attention to what everybody else is doing because the mental health space, space it's growing, but people are trying to figure out solutions because we've got some really big issues, at least at the collegiate level. So when you're building this program, do you through your training or experience or looking at other programs, do you have a template in mind? How does that work when you're, when you're building this up? If I'm real honest with you, uh, I've had conversations with my wife who I love immensely and enormously. We used to have conversations about this. Really? That, even all the consultation I was doing with various sport entities, this conversation dates back 10, 12 years. Were any of these entities to get real serious about, which is the operative word here, about putting something meaningfully in place, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about the components of this for 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so I was asked by another reporter, 
How can you build a program such as the PA that we have and still hold down a full-time job as a professor and do all these other things I'm doing? And my answer without sounding anything but humble is quite easily because I thought about it. I'm very passionate about serving others, about getting to the center of it all in ways that are going to be inviting, in ways that ask people to participate in their own healing, Mm -hmm. in their own self-reflection. I I was taught many mantras, one of which is applicable here. A person will never see their reflection in running water. It is only when the water is still where their reflected image begin to emerge. So I learned that and uh, many other things in designing in my own head a program of support, a program that illuminates the individual, the human, uh, a program that makes people feel visible and not ashamed, uh, a program that helps them to project the full marker, all the markers of their identity, the pain and the pleasure, uh, the triumphs and the tears. It's part of who they are. Mm-hmm. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just part of who you are. The more important is, what do you do with it? So I, I've sort of thought about that. have been probably, I don't know if overpassionate is a word, but overpassionate about that. And so it was actually being quite easy to put all this together. Because you had already thought about it for after it's all not, those years. Know, I think I've been in this space for a while, but I've also... Though I've been trained as a traditional psychologist with all of the credentials and the academic, all this books, learning and all that stuff. I also studied a lot of Eastern philosophy and other philosophies that I really have uh, taken to. Uh, As I mentioned, I still do uh, martial arts now in the form of Tai Chi, was Mm -hmm. doing Kung Fu, have always enjoyed, uh, again, the Asian philosophy and, and a lot of what I learned in those philosophy, uh, philosophical systems, sometimes are quite contrary to what we learned here in American psychology. So when I blend the two, that gives me something different to look at. But the other thing I want to segue this real quickly, some systems that I'm aware of, including some collegiate, but also pros, who are quote-unquote just now getting around to it who are figuring it out. Mm -hmm. I never say this publicly, but I always ask myself, are you really wanting to figure it out? Really? Because I'm not convinced that they all are. I'm convinced that a lot of people want to do something now because everybody else is doing something about it. Hmm. That there is now some liability associated with it. Um. Because when I look at the history of why programs started, which has been interesting to me, it's not uncommon for uh, professional sport organizations to have a program that was in response to a very public, visible stain on their image such as alcohol and substance abuse, such as domestic violence, 
then all of a sudden, psh, well, we have to have a substance use program. We have to have domestic violence. Yep. Program. So it's in response to a social exposure. Yeah, it's a PR move. To yep. use your words. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's good or bad. Yeah. But the issue of substance use, the issue of domestic violence, the issue of whatever you now have a program for, those issues were always there. But you had incentive to not need or want to address them. And so you didn't fail at putting a program in place. You succeeded at not putting a program in place. See, I personally, Prim, don't endorse the notion of failure. When I taken it out of the sport context, when I look at, in fact, one of the classes I teach is in trauma psychology. And I said, when you look at homelessness, when you look at human trafficking, when you look at abuses of all kinds, if you can record that they've been going on for years, you have to ask a couple of questions. Has America really failed at ending poverty? Has they really failed at ending homelessness? Do they really want to end human trafficking? Or are there systems and structures in place to maintain and to succeed at not eradicating homelessness, not eradicating poverty? Why is it that women are economically uh, always paid less, viewed as less than their male counterparts. Well, is that, has the system failed at elevating equity? Or have they succeeded at maintaining the imbalance that exists? Hmm. So I started asking some different questions. So if a system is really wanting to figure it out, if that's in their heart to figure out the human and what can they do to serve, aside from all the politics, you'll get it done. Mm. If you're there to put on a program that is a check off the list that we have something in place, that's what you're going to have done. Interesting. Uh, you got me thinking there. But what if... The intentions are there, and there are people that truly want to succeed, but it's a new space. And there are places to learn about that. There are places, there are books to read, there are conferences to go to, there are summits to attend. There are ways of inviting yourself into spaces or positioning yourself to be invited into spaces of learning where you can get the job done. So the information of how to do it, the strategy involved, the techniques, the sort of the whole architect of how to put something together exists. So you have to go out and ask the right people, be invited in certain spaces or invite yourself into certain spaces and allow your curiosity gene to really take over. So does that mean that the information is out there about how to really serve and take care and also establish a functioning mental health program. There's absolutely no question that that's true. 
So, so the, so the, basically the program that you have created, if people were to take a prototype and say like, Hey, if this is going to, if we really want to do some good work and, and take care of the mental health space, this is the prototype that we should follow. Well, again, I, I want to be very modest and humble and not put ourselves as a prototype, but, but I think that to answer your question, the information on how to do it is there. Ultimately, a question of resources, financial and otherwise, are going to come to the table. Mm-hmm. And yes, in this case, the Players Association has committed resources and time and energy and the freedom to really put together something that's going to be quite responsive. And so with those factors, anything is possible. So what are the, I know there's four phases and, and you've identified uh, psychologists and clinicians in each of the MBA cities, but what are, the, what are the pillars of this mental health program that you think are absolutely necessary for not just this program, but every other mental health program to succeed? <clears throat> well, we put together, as I mentioned, a, um, a list of resources in every city. So we have something for players to go to. We have uh, built uh, the mental health literacy program, and we're continuing to build that in an attempt to educate players, to get them to really participate again in their own healing, their own journey. What we also have done as part of our third wing to our program is to build relationships with journalists, both visual, uh, written journalists, to help us uh, ask questions that begin to change the narrative. See, we as a society, I think, are responding to a narrative that has been spun about mental health and wellness, i.e. it's stigma, something to be avoided. There's a deliberate intent for stigmatizing, but one of our goals is to educate and to again build relationships with journalists and people who are experts at getting out the word, raising the tough questions, uh, stimulating dialogue, and sometimes difficult conversations. Because when everybody starts getting the buzz and the hum about it, that is going to create some momentum. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's going to be super important. But the fourth thing that Keon Dooling and I, a partner I really respect and admire, we have touched probably at this point every baller in the league. We've gone to many of the home games, for example, the Clippers and Lakers, and visit with the teams. We've gone to meetings here, meetings there. Keon is a 13-year member of that fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so has relational capital that's just exceptional. And I think as a result of his relational capital as a, as a former baller of 13 years, um, and a person such as myself with the background and sort of professional expertise, that combination, I think it really does well. Mm-hmm. So where I'm going with this, you can't just build a program and assume people are going to come. Right. You have to create a space and opportunity for them to at least scratch his head and say, hmm, what's this all about? Hmm, does it apply to me? And to really use journalists, work with journalists and partner with them and, and other folks who can get the word out, uh, both domestically and globally. Mm-hmm. I participate, for example, in not only a lot of uh, domestic organizations, but in part of an international think tank 
Mm-hmm. Um, we just met a couple weeks ago in Colorado Springs for a second meeting. And last year when we met, um, we put together a position paper. Uh, it's called a consensus statement on the mental health and wellness of elite athletes. We're going to produce a second consensus paper. We have plans next year to be at another global location to talk about the mental health and wellness of coaches, for example. Mm. So there's That's a, very a, much a global as well as a d- domestic uh, conversation that we want to continue to trigger. Because once you get that vibe and you begin to see how important this is, mm-hmm. um, ultimately we want the person to really live out his or her true purpose and true calling. It's often fascinating to me, and I mean this with all the passion that I can muster, how you can see somebody with Hall of Fame talent executing it consistently, carrying around the baggage that they're carrying around. It's scared to think if they had a place and a space just to park some of that, how much more they would practice. Now, in fairness to them, because of some early trauma, there are a lot of athletes who uh, turn that uh, unfortunate circumstance around, commit to it in a childhood pact to themselves that I'll never be in this vulnerable position, nor anybody who enters my circle of influence. Will they be vulnerable in that way? And they commit to their craft, and in this case, basketball. Um, but they have that what's called a chip on their shoulder, that edge. And, and quite frankly, there are some athletes who may resist going to counseling or getting into this because they feel it softens the edge or takes. That happens the, in the business world, actually. A lot of people are, particularly men, they, I feel they like are scared of losing that, their edge. Exactly. They believe that to be true. There's no evidence to support it. It's believable. But as I mentioned earlier, something doesn't have to be true to be believable. It just has to be believable. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a part of them that are embracing it and they're really not wanting to understand what's really driving it. And in part because the reality of any professional athlete is that their careers short-lived. Mm-hmm. And, and so why would I want to uncover all of this stuff to maybe discover more talent than I have? If at the end of the day, in several years down the road, it's going to be all finished anyway. So there's right. more incentive to sort of keep everything packed. Mm-hmm. What worked to get me here is going to work to sort of get me through. And, I, and I'm willing to sort of the price of the ticket is to keep all this contained, ball out, as they say, really commit to the grit and grind <coughs> and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of those forces that need to happen. But I think it's a conversation that has been started. It needs to go on. It's been going on for a long time. Yeah. But it's been hiding in plain sight. And I think there are a lot of reasons to suspect uh, that it's going to see the light of day and is seeing the light of day, the mental health and wellness conversation. Yeah, I'm honored to be part of that conversation. Oh, you're right in in the thick of it. And so I I think that your 
structure for the program is is really interesting because it sounds like you're hitting it from multiple sides and, and areas. So you've got the the structure in place to provide the resources. You have the clinicians and psychologists in all the cities. You have the the website, the information out there. But then there's also the working with the messengers and changing the conversation Correct. of the mental health space. And then in addition to that, then you've got the personal interaction. Correct. With Keon. And so you, you guys are talking with the players. I guess I'm curious about the, so that's kind of like the macro perspective. So what does the day-to-day stuff look like? How, how do you, because it's impossible to travel to every single city and game and, and talk to all of these players. How are you educating them about that smoke de- de- detector and, and you know, that, whether it's weekly or monthly or daily, what are some of the things that you're doing to, to tackle well, that? One of the things we, we've been doing the last couple of years, Keon and I specifically, uh, one of the activities uh, that happens in the uh, professional basketball is that there's a rookie transition program, essentially, where they bring the rookies together for four days of essentially orientation to the league. And both Keon, Dulin, and I have presented a mental health and wellness component to every single rookie who's come through the last couple of years. And therein, we talk about a little bit about his journey, about the resources of the program, about smoke detector behavior. And so we've planted seeds in those mm-hmm. ways. Uh, we've talked with uh, my colleagues at the headquarters. And, for example, for Mental Health Awareness Month, which is in May, we put together something to put it on their website. Uh, We're going to have, uh, whether it's a newsletter or some other social media that drives directly to the players, all of that is in the process of being developed now. So we're going to have, ideally, a minimum of monthly contact, if not weekly contact. Mm -hmm via social media, via some other form where they can get a message, a tip. Nothing long-winded where they had takes all day to read, but little reminders, triggers, um, moments of self-reflection um, where they can cumulatively begin to go, hmm, this is what we're doing. And so we're going to continue to do those things. We're developing uh, we thought about, well, we will be developing a podcast series where we have players actually listen to the journey of their fellow fraternity brothers on the successes they've had, but also content experts on various components of mental health and wellness. Mm-hmm. So it's in a year and three or four months that we've been in operation, I think we've gotten the structure together, the base at this point, it's about continuing to grow and expand. And, and really also, very importantly, receiving ongoing feedback from players about what they would like to see, what would be helpful for them. I like that. That's important. So we're not, well, it's not yeah. important, it's critical. We have some expertise um, as professionals. Uh, Kian says expertise both as a professional, but also as a baller. But I'm never of the mindset of wanting to plant onto somebody something that I think they need. Um, One of the things I teach my students, uh, they have to memorize 12 mantras sitting through my class. Nice. (laughs) I bet your classes are really hard. They're they're not hard. They're fun and engaging and (laughs) memorable. But 
I tease them that the goal of memorizing isn't to remember, isn't to recall, isn't to regurgitate. The goal of memorizing, Prim, is to forget. Forget meaning to get so deeply ingrained you don't even think about it. Mm. And one of the mantras they have to memorize, apropos to your last question, is when you listen to a client long enough, they will tell you what's wrong with them. When you listen to your client just a little bit longer, they will tell you what you can do to make them feel better. So I teach my students and invite them to consider that the real therapist in the room isn't you. The real therapist in the room is the patient. They have years of genius and success that you need to tap into. And it's clear that they've come to you because they're in some stage of brokenness and confusion. But make no mistake, I don't care how broken or confused somebody, they've never lost the genius that they were innately gifted with. And that will remain in them until they die. They don't have and don't feel that they can see it right now. So your goal as a therapist at most is to facilitate them reconnecting to the genius and the talent that they already have. So I'm always one of wanting to pull from the audience of ballers in this case, or clients that I've seen. What do you need? You've been living with you a long time. And the fact that you're even in front of me suggests that you've been quite successful. I like that. What are you reacting to? I just love, I love what you just said. I just, um, for those on audio, I'm just sitting there smiling. I think that's, that's, uh, smart and inspirational and hopeful for people to hear the the fact that, yeah, I guess, you know, the therapist or the psychologist is basically the vehicle to get some of that wisdom out. And you're just kind of there almost like holding their hand and helping them along, along the way. And the person like the, the wisdom is in that person. Not only is it in that print, but, but the two things I, 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 also invite my students to reflect on what is the story of the Wizard of Oz. If you remember the story of the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy found herself in the land of Oz wanting to get back home to Kansas. The munchkin said, you have to go to see the wizard. So she went on this yellow brick road journey and en route encountered a scarecrow, tin man, and cowardly lion, symbolic of brains, heart, and courage. So they finally get to the Emerald City. The wizard tells Dorothy to click your heels three times, and that'll send you back home. So she wakes up in Kansas in her bed and realizes she was dreaming. But what the true moral of that story is, Prim, is you don't have to go outside of yourself down some yellow brick road journey to have somebody tell you about the brain's courage and heart that you already have inside of you. So when he was telling her to go back to Clicker Hills, go back to Kansas, he was saying Clicker Hills and go in here internally. You will find all the brains, heart, courage you will ever need. The final thing I did in this last lecture, I guess, is ask my students look at their hands and I say, how many of you have fingerprints on your fingers? And they say, of course. I said, pick one. Say, so pick one. Now, how many of these fingerprints 
are identical to anybody else's fingerprint on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. And the answer is obviously there isn't any duplicate. So the truth is, is that when you were born, the mold was broke. There is nobody like you. There will never be anybody like you. And you have 10 affirmations. You're wonderful. You're gifted. You're talented. Right here in front of you. Nobody else has your fingerprints. So you have a goal and a quest to discover the genius and talent that you have that is embedded in the very person that you are. And I really bring that philosophy to everybody I see, every baller I've worked with, every baller I will continue to work with. And it really comes in the form of an invitation. I never say this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. An invitation, when you open an invitation, you get excited just looking at it. You go, oh gosh, this is something I really want to do. They don't have to change. Facts are, even somebody who's had a pretty traumatic life, if you look at it now, things didn't turn out so badly. Mm-hmm. So why do I have to change? You don't have to. So I think it's important to send out the invitation for people to at least reflect, to consider, are they doing what they are gifted to do, what their real purpose is? That takes time, energy. In the middle of that, you got to deal with real life and the, the uh, opportunities and challenges therein. But I think at the end of the day, it's all about finding a moment to listen to yourself. Mm-hmm. In fact, the last thing I'll share with you, um, I have my students write out the word listen. And I go around and ask them to say, what, what does that really mean? And you have all these sort of combinations of what it means. But as I mentioned at the top of this interview, the best place to hide is in plain sight. So I invite my students to say, what if I were to tell you, invite you to consider that the key to doing maximally what this word spells is hidden in these six letters. And they look puzzled. And it says, yeah, if you could take these letters and move them around, you'd come up with the word silent. So the best way to listen is to be silent and to absorb what you're hearing somebody say, to really soak in the emotional vibe that you're giving off to really listen intently to the history of their challenges and more importantly, how they overcame them. Everybody is carrying around a treasure treasure chest of genius and talent that they don't believe they have. Mm -hmm. And so they go outside down that yellow brick road journey to find that Mm -hmm. which they innately possess. I like that. I think that it's important to be silent with ourselves. And as you mentioned, still, so we can listen. I think we've become conditioned, especially in a fast-paced society, to Absolutely. constantly be running around and suppressing our emotions. And right, those are the moments where you kind of have those aha moments. And that's also, right. I think that's a good message for just the dialogue in general, whether it's sports mm-hmm. or the political landscape today, Absolutely. there's a lot of talking and not a lot of listening. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a good way to, to end it. But yeah. I, I'm excited that you've definitely, you're drawing up the invitation. The invitations are going out. And I'm so excited to see how everything shapes up. And I'm excited to see the progress that comes yeah. from this program and, and the work that you're going to be doing. Well, again, yeah, I, I feel blessed to be working with somebody like Keon Dooley to be supported yeah. by 
the uh, Players Association, the administration, and the executive structure being supported by two players, more importantly, being honored to be uh, having a place at the table of conversation. Yeah. Um, working with colleagues such as yourself, even though it's in a different discipline, it's very much partnering with passing the word and, and having an authentic interest in what we're really trying to accomplish and then communicating that out to the millions of people who follow you. So thank you for the opportunity. Of course. For this thank you for coming on our show, Dr. Parham. And, and where can people find you and where can people offer some of that support? Well, I'm uh, again, my, I'm here at Loyola Mayor at my university. So I certainly have a, a presence there on that website. Um, they can always contact me there or through the National Basketball Players Association, uh, which is based in New York. Good stuff. Dr. Pete, thank you so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure and honor. <laughs> thank you for the invitation. The thing that stood out to me was when Dr. Parham said, I'll be interested to see where you are 10 years from now and to see if this is still your life purpose and to be open to the possibility of change and to one's evolution across their lifetime. And when he said that, it made my ears perk up because he's right in that not only can our goals and aspirations and priorities and values change, but so can our life purposes, depending on what stage we're at in our life. Now, early as a child, thinking back to it, I think my purpose was just kind of to be the best daughter and student I could be. And then it was to be the best tennis player I could be, maybe as a national champion or pro. And then after college, my purpose was to not only become a sports anchor at the worldwide leader in sports at ESPN, but to be able to achieve a high level of success and to be able to navigate a landscape where very few women and people of color had done and to remain authentic to who I am. And today, my purpose is to be the best wife and mother I can be and to also, within my professional career, have an impact on athletes and sports parents and coaches and to young people. And so maybe the takeaway from today's conversation is that we can and will have multiple purposes across our lifetime and that we should always be paying attention to the clues that indicate when those shifts and changes are occurring. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, as always, you can always reach out to me on all my social media platforms at prim underscore seripipat. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 